0: Thank you. Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here, continuing our study in Ecclesiastes. Today we're in uh, part 11 of our Meaningless Life series, and uh, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, and we're going to hit 11 ways of the wise. Now, I don't know how or when you became a Christian, if you even are one or how you have been explained what Christianity is and how you become one. Uh, For me, I was raised a marginal Catholic. I didn't love Jesus. Some Catholics do. I didn't. It wasn't the church's fault. I just didn't have any interest. Anyways, I uh, remember through high school and then into early college, well-intended, well-meaning Christians would try and get me to convert and become a Christian. And so they would ask questions like this, tell me, if these sound familiar, if you die tonight, do you know where you'd go? Or they'd say something like, um, if you become a Christian, you can go to heaven when you die. Now, here was my big problem in first hearing those offers and opportunities. Um, I wasn't near death. I was young, in my teens. When you haven't even seen 20 candles on your birthday t- cake, you're, you're, you're not really worried about your coffin, You don't wake up every day trying to figure out what the set list is going to be for your funeral. And it seemed to me like Christianity is what you give to somebody when they're on their deathbed. And I thought, well, maybe when I'm a grandpa on their deathbed in the hospital in 60, 70, 80 years, then uh, they can come and ask me these quirky questions again. And maybe then I can uh, become a Christian and get a suit picked out and Choose the songs for my funeral, and and then die and go to heaven. I guess it seemed to me like the whole point of Christianity was to get you to heaven. I'm not against getting into the kingdom of God and the resurrection of the dead and life eternal with the Lord Jesus, but when I was uh, in those early years, I was more worried about tomorrow rather than my death day. What would I major in? What career path would I pursue? Who would I marry? Where would I live? How many kids would we have? How would we provide for our family? These are the kind of things that were on the forefront of my mind, not the day of my death. So things changed in college when I started meeting Christians who were a lot more practical. They were more uh, earthy in a good way. They were uh, very much into talking about things like relationships and work and money and family and marriage. They did talk about dying and going to be with the Lord, but in the meantime, It seemed like they were very focused on investing and enjoying all the days between now and then. And uh, in part because of their influence, I started reading the Bible to see what it actually said. And I could still remember the first time that I hit this category in the Bible called wisdom literature. Uh, Your Bible's not in chronological order. It's like a library, and it's subdivided according to uh, style of literature. Well, the style of literature that captured me, especially as a guy who was pursuing a, a minor in philosophy was the wisdom literature, Song of Songs, Proverbs, Job, Psalms, uh, Ecclesiastes, James. Uh, these are the more philosophical, practical books of the Bible. They're, they're real, they're raw, they're rooted in, in life here on the earth. And they, they they focus a lot, not just on your eternal life, but also on your present life. And what I learned is that your eternal life begins the day that you meet the Lord Jesus the God of the Bible, and it continues forever. So it's not just something that happens when you die. It's something that happens when you're born again, and it continues through your death. Since then, as I've had the pleasure and privilege of studying the Bible, I've learned that Christianity is supposed to be a life lived with God that never ends, and it begins the day you meet Jesus, and it really involves the daily, practical, mundane matters of life. And uh, as you you read the wisdom literature, it really comes down to two basic kinds and categories of people, the wise and the foolish. The wise live their life in relationship with God and learn from their mistakes, and, and they understand the practical matters of life and how they're all connected to God, and the foolish just conversely don't. And it's a weird day we live in because even if you use words like foolish and wise, you get in a lot of trouble because our culture likes to believe in Tolerance and diversity, which isn't always a bad thing, but what happens then is every lifestyle, perspective, and ideology is both tolerated and celebrated, which just goes to show that the fools are winning. Not everything you do with your pots and your pans and your plants results in the same lifestyle and is equally pleasing in the sight of God. And the truth is, we've all got a little fool in us at the very least. Uh, But the wise know that. The wise know that we're prone to folly and they work to correct it. So in this section of Ecclesiastes, we're going to deal with some wisdom and some folly from the second wisest man who has ever lived in the history of the world. His name is Solomon. He's second only to Jesus Christ. And uh, he walks us through every day right up to our last day with 11 ways of the wise. An 11-point sermon is a long one, so we're going to hustle and move quick. Uh, Point number one, seek to do the right thing every day. That's what the wise do. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, part A says, quote, a good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. Uh, For women, uh, good perfume seems to be essential. Same goes true for a man's cologne. If you've ever hung out with junior high boys, you know that it smells a lot like body spray. Amen. Uh, this goes doubly true for those who are single and wanting to attract a mate by creating a pleasing and inviting environment. You got to get the right perfume, you got to get the right cologne. Well, in Solomon's comparison, a good reputation goes before us as the aroma of our character. Our reputation is built over time and can be lost at any time. This explains why a good business leader can spend a lifetime building a financial portfolio only to see it gutted by one bad investment. The same holds true for a husband or wife who invests decades building their family only to collapse it with one careless act of adultery. While there is certainly nothing wrong with planning for the future, the truth is there won't be much of a future or a tomorrow if we don't do the right thing today. Therefore, just as a wall is built by stacking one brick at a time, so too our reputation is built by doing the right thing one day at a time. And here's the truth. I can remember a season in this last year where I just felt like everything went upside down and I didn't know what was right, what was wrong, what would work, what wouldn't work. And life gets complicated and confusing sometimes, leaving us uncertain what we should do. And sometimes the result is we try and figure out, well, what will produce the right result? Uh, That's oftentimes the wrong question. The right question is, what's the right thing to do? The key is to, by God's grace, Try to do the right thing every day as best we can with whatever information we have. And as we get more information and circumstances change, then we make new decisions. And all we can do is do the best to make the best decision we can every day. And if we do so, over time, a reputation is built. So number one, seek to do the right thing every day. And it reminds me of the Apostle Paul's word as well, where he talks about church leaders. And he says that they must have a good reputation with outsiders. Well, there's a guy who started more than one riot, was run out of city, stoned, homeless, beaten, left for dead, mobbed, spent time in prison, wrote some books of the Bible from prison. And uh, it just goes to show you that a good reputation could include a little bit of sanctified troublemaking. Anyways, point number two, uh, the uh, ways of the wise include, number two, live life every day for one day. So live every day for one day. Here's how he says it in Ecclesiastes 7. The second half of verse 1 through verse 2. And the day you die is better than the day you were born. Better to spend your time at funerals than parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Here's what he's saying. Life life is framed by death. Life is framed by death. Just like a picture has a frame, well, your life has a frame and that frame is death. Now the average person lives about 27,000 days, give or take your health and a few other circumstances. That being said, our opportunities to learn, love, and leave an impact, uh, they're fleeting, they go fast. 27,000 days seems like a lot, but it moves pretty quick. Because it is so easy to waste our life one hour and one day at a time, it's wise to start with the end in mind and work backward. I think it was Soren Kierkegaard, an old philosopher said, we should define life forward and live it backward. This is kind of like uh, plugging in a final destination to whatever navigation system you use on your phone or in your car. You want to get there. You're not exactly sure how to get there. So you start with the destination, not just wandering around. And then you're directed purposefully toward a desired end. And then you save time and energy getting there. Well, the same is true for life. If you don't know where you're going, how do you know what you're supposed to do along the way? And the truth is, we spend a lot of time in our life preparing for first days. Uh, This includes birthdays to celebrate the first day of your life, and people put a lot of time and energy into planning the first day of their marriage with their wedding. And those things aren't bad, not against having a birthday party or throwing a big wedding party, but often we plan very well for the first day, and we don't plan nearly as well for the last day. What do you want your last day to be like? Who do you want to be at your funeral? What do you want them to say? How do you want them to feel? What difference do you want to have made after you are gone? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? Solomon reminds us that we can learn a lot by attending not just parties, but funerals through the course of life. And for the Christians, Philippians 1 says that living means living for Christ and dying is even better. And Solomon says that the day you die is better than the day you were born. Here's the good news. Uh, For the believer, uh, for those of you who know and love the Lord Jesus and are loved by the Lord Jesus, dying is not your last day, but it's actually a first day. It's not your worst day, it's your best day. For the unbeliever, this life is as close to heaven as they will ever get and hell awaits them. For the believer, this life is as close to hell as we ever get and heaven awaits us. Therefore, living every day for the last day is the best way. Living life knowing that you will die and stand before God and give an account. That's the only way to live every day as you prepare for the last day. Number three, the ways of the wise include uh, this, learn to lament. Point number three comes from Ecclesiastes 7 verses 3 and 4. where He says, sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool only thinks about having a good time. Uh, learn to lament. Here's what he's saying. Um, You need to learn what to do with the pain, the grief, the heartache, the loss, the shame, the failure, the destruction, the devastation, the brokenness, the weariness. See, in our culture, we celebrate our wins publicly and we mourn our losses privately. You're having a good day? Tell all your friends. You're having a bad day? Go home and be alone. Uh, This can lead to isolation, which results in depression. And then the result is very lonely and broken people in a depressed condition, self-medicate and or medicate to cope with emotional, mental, spiritual pain. What do you do with it? Well, in the Bible, lamenting is part of the public life of a person. In the Eastern way of life, there was a way to mourn. There were days for mourning and public periods where others would in joy, participating with you, sharing your collective grief as a way to heal together and love one another. It wasn't necessarily joyful, but it was certainly helpful. In the isolated West, things are not this way, and social media only increases the pressure to maintain a facade that all is well, and we are winning and not losing. Every day we're supposed to put something up about how awesome we are and how awesome our day was. Well, what if that's not the case? then you're forced to fake it or deny it. Turn to the Bible and you find that the uh, the Bible includes a book called Lamentations. It's about lamenting, grieving, mourning, processing, healing. Uh, the Psalms are categorized by groups, and these are songs in the Old Testament, the largest category of which is laments. And there's large sections of entire books of the Bible, especially in the prophets, that are just their personal laments. It's their journal entries if you will where they're grieving and mourning and processing and healing and and weeping and and in some ways unburdening themselves from whatever trauma or trouble has come upon them this is hugely important lamenting is the only way you transfer the burden to the lord lamenting is the only way that you get the past not to haunt you into the future even the Lord Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, and even the Lord Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. And, and this kind of lamenting allows us to get to sorrow, and sorrow allows us to work through our grief. Uh, sorrow lets us stop pretending that all is well, and sorrow welcomes others in, so that the grief is a place where friendship can be forged. Right? If a brother loves at all times and a friend is made for adversity, that's what Proverbs says, well... How do you get a real deep relationship but through some difficult circumstances? Conversely, back to the wise and the foolish, Solomon says quote, A fool only thinks about having a good time. A-, a fool is easily exposed on the cloudy days of life. Uh, the Puritans used to call them swallow friends, they leave when winter comes. When hardship comes, when trials come, when suffering comes, when difficulty comes, when strife comes, here's what happens. Wise people mourn. Foolish people drink too much and do stupid things. That's what they do. That's what he's saying. Fools drink and dance and laugh their way through their problems. Everything's fine. I've moved on. It doesn't affect me. It wasn't a big deal. I don't even need to go back there. All they're doing is avoiding and ignoring their pain. Wise people embrace it and they mourn through it. Right When the Bible says in Psalm 23 to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's what it's talking about. You got to go through it. You can't go around it. You can't jump over it. Fools refuse to go through the hard stuff of life, but wise people accept it, go through it, and know that on the other side there is God and there's an opportunity for joy. Who do you need to lament? What do you need to lament? How do you need to lament? Are you very good at it? If not, you'll get depressed. And if you get depressed, you could isolate yourself and make things worse. And if you're a guy, you might overcompensate by just getting angry all the time because you don't like the weakness that comes with feeling sad. There's a lot of wisdom here, and it is intensely practical. You can see it's not just about going to heaven when you die, but it's bringing heaven into the death of every day. The ways of the wise, point number four. He says to keep one ear open and one ear closed. Ecclesiastes 7, 5, and 6 says, Better to be criticized by a wise person than to be praised by a fool. A fool's laughter is quickly gone, like thorns crackling in a fire. This also is meaningless. The truth is, none of us have enough innate insight, wisdom, experience to live our life well. We all need some help, some counsel, some advice. We need somebody to come along and Help us make decisions and sort things through. Yet this leads to a terrible dilemma. You cannot take advice from anyone, and you cannot take advice from no one. So how do you do it? You say, well, I don't want to take advice from everyone. I don't want to take advice from no one. So how do you know who to take advice from? Solomon rightly reminds us that both the wise and the foolish are happy to give their opinion and tell us what they think and tell us what they think we should do. But... If we want good for our lives, need to think of it this way: keep one ear closed to the fools and one ear open to the wise. Maybe that's why God gave us two ears, one to close to the fools, one to open to the wise. Well, how do we know who the fools are? Solomon gives us a two-fold test. One, a fool treats everything with levity that is unfitting. This is the person who everything's a joke. Nothing is ever serious. And that can be totally fine at your birthday party, but when you're in the cancer ward going in for chemotherapy, it's just not fitting. Not everything is funny, not everything's a joke, and not everything can be dealt with by a sense of humor. Fools tend to be shallow, unable to swim in the deep waters of life, so they splash around the shallow shore and they treat everything like a joke or a simple matter not worth fretting over. A fool can be fun in the good times and downright annoying in the tough times. Solomon says, number two, a fool fades fast. When he uses this analogy of a fire that gets hot and burns loud and then is gone, he's talking about starting a fire with uh, sticks from thorn brushes that are really dried out. They'll light fast, they'll burn hot, they'll crackle and pop, and then the fire fades out really fast. Well, what he's saying is, a fool starts out with a lot of passion and energy that fades really quickly. A fool will show a lot of emotion and make a lot of promises in a loud volume at the beginning of a lengthy trial and gone before the real work even begins. Fools don't really count the cost of walking with someone through a hard season, and so they say a lot, do a little, and are nowhere to be found after the first trip to chemo or the first trip to the divorce attorney. How about you? When it comes to hurting people, struggling people, suffering people, wounded people, are you wise or foolish? Are you really counting the cost of being there for them and committed to that emotional deposit and investment over a course of time? Or are you someone who laughs a lot, tries to just change the subject or get them to move on because you don't want to engage? Or are you someone who makes a lot of hollow, empty promises and doesn't follow through? We've all had those kind of people in our lives, and they're really discouraging and disappointing and sometimes downright despairing. And by God's grace, we need to seek to do all we can to not be that kind of person to those who are hurting. Number five, ways of the wise. Shortcuts are dead ends. Think of this like your grandpa. Solomon's an old guy at this point, and he's looking back on his lap, on his life, and he's, he's sitting there, and you, you, you sort of get the impression of an old guy in his chair with his feet up and his grandkids sitting around, and, hey, kids, let me tell you some stuff I've learned. And this is sort of words from grandpa. This is advice for the long haul. And number five, he says, shortcuts are dead ends. You ever driven and tried to take a shortcut and found it was a dead end and it just did not work? I had that recently with the kids in school. We were running a little bit late, so I thought, okay, I'll just, you know, jot over through this neighborhood and take a shortcut and avoid the lights. Literally ended up at a dead end, had to turn all the way back around and go all the way back to where I started. Sometimes shortcuts are just dead ends. He talks about shortcuts in Ecclesiastes 7.5. He says, extortion turns people into fools and bribes corrupt the heart. In life, you know, when money is short, deadlines are tight, it's tempting to cut corners, take a shortcut, do things that are unethical, if not illegal. A bribe is when we decide how much we will sell our integrity for. When we take a bribe, it reveals that we're lovers of money and we're Worshippers of money, which means that at the bedrock of our soul in that moment, at least, we're not lovers of God and worshipers of God. In this way, money is a a good way to gauge our soul. And these quote unquote shortcuts ultimately prove to be dead ends in God's economy. Give you some examples of uh, extortion and bribes. It includes uh, fudging on our billable hours if you're someone who bills for your time. Overbilling if you're in business, jacking up profit margins on an item beyond that which was agreed to, and stealing from our employer. This includes stealing time by surfing the net, checking social media, engaging in personal activities. It includes covering for others who are skimming the company in some way as well. We can make a lot of excuses for why we take what is not ours or take more than we've got coming, but all such dealings, as Solomon says, quote unquote, Corrupt the heart. Since the heart is the seed and the center of our lives from which all of our life flows, poisoning your soul is not a good return on investment for a few bucks. Saying don't take shortcuts. Number six, he says, uh, make the last day the best day. Ecclesiastes 7, 8. Finishing is better than starting and patience is better than pride. Um, About a year and a half ago, I put this verse on my... Monitor so I could memorize it and see it every day, just to give me kind of the long view of things and to remind me every day of of wisdom from God. Um, give you an example uh, of someone who starts well but doesn't end well. Um, I never played football, <clears throat> so in high school, I'd grab my water. In high school, I. Uh, Tried out for the high school football team as a freshman. I'd never played, had no idea what to expect, but i played some other sports and thought, well, I'll go check this one out. I we'll ended up lettering as a freshman and getting some playing time on the varsity and played some quarterback. wasn't awesome, but it was fun. It was good. What was really shocking was the first day of practice. Having never been to a football practice, didn't know what to expect, and they did tell me prepare because uh, the first week of practices are what they call, quote-unquote, two-a-days. that meant we're going to have two very long, grueling practices um, on the field in the hot sun. And uh, my goal was just to survive. And I think the whole point was to uh, separate the quitters from the Warriors. Boy, you could tell real quick the guys who were ready and the guys who weren't. Well, anyways, imagine getting, I don't know, maybe 100 teenage boys all dressed up in pads, helmets on for the first practice. To say the least, it was loud in the locker room as guys are getting suited up. Man, there was a lot of trash talking, guys just screaming, pounding their chest, putting their helmets on, banging their heads together, pounding on each other's shoulder pads, talking very confidently how we're going to crush everybody in our path and we're going to win the state championship and, you know, the earth is going to shake because we're going to be present. I mean, it was it was sort of a gladiator kind of moment. Well, then we go out to practice within 30, first 30 minutes, a good percentage of the guys. Weeping, puking, quitting. I mean, it was it was over. By the end of the first week, it was not nearly as crowded in the locker room, and it was certainly a lot quieter. Why? Because it's really easy to get fired up at the beginning of something and really hard to stay fired up all the way to the end. This is the point that Solomon was driving at. Pride will get you a good start, but patience gets you a good finish. See, every guy's tough in boot camp. Every woman's the perfect mother in the second trimester of pregnancy before the baby shows up. Every guy's an unbelievable mate on his second date, but it's the end that counts. The wise people, they learn that in the middle, there's going to be sin, consequences for sin, and difficulty. But by grace, with wisdom from God, you can navigate through it so that in the end, there's something to show for it. I'll give you an example. There's a line I love in... Another pastor uses this on occasion, so I borrowed it from him. There's a guy in the Old Testament named Ahab. Uh, Not a real good or godly guy, but he does say something in 1 Kings 20 verse 11 that is really insightful. He says, A warrior putting on his sword for battle should not boast like a warrior who has already won. What he's saying is, uh, don't tell me what you're going to do. Do it and let the results speak for themselves. Don't talk about all that's going to happen until it's already done. And you know what? I'd say for sure I've been guilty of that. For sure I've been guilty of that. It's very convicting. How about you? You're a leader. You're a visionary. You're a promise maker. What he's saying is the end of a matter is better than beginning and patience is better than pride. You know, a guy strapping on his... uh, His warrior's outfit in that day, it would have been a breastplate and a shield and a helmet and a sword. In our day, it would be your Kevlar vest and your helmet and your night vision goggles and your sidearm. You could talk about all the cool things you're going to go do and all the bad guys you're going to go kill. But in the end, it doesn't matter what you say. It's all about what you do. And this is why, quite frankly, the vows at our weddings, they're important, but they're only important if we keep them. A lot of people stand up and say a lot of things and they don't do them. That's what he's talking about. Number seven, be a good dog. This is a little weird, but you go with what you got. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 9, control your temple temper, for anger labels you a fool. Um, when I grew up, I grew up in the city, uh, did not have a lot of pets or animals, was a city kid. Uh, many years later as a dad, our kids wanted to get a family dog. So a couple years ago, we had to figure out, okay, what kind of dog do you get? So we start doing all our research and uh you know they're like oh we want a Nikita we want a labradoodle we want a, a golden retriever we want a german shepherd well we did all these different discussions and negotiations and uh the kids and i kind of wanted two different kinds of dogs the kids wanted a dog that was basically just like the world's nicest dog they wanted a dog that they would just uh, lay next to you sit on your lap um lick your face And uh, anytime you came near them, they would roll over, show you their belly, and wait for a scratch. So pretty much that's what my kids wanted. And they wanted a kid that would kind of, or a dog rather, that would act like the sixth kid in the family. Me on the other end, I'm thinking, well, we've had some safety and security issues, and things get a little crazy sometimes in my world. And so I want a dog that is not a danger to the kids, but I want a dog that is a danger to the bad guys. I want a dog that if a bad guy shows up. Somebody's a harm to the kids. I want this dog to know it is Cujo time. And uh, they are ready to uh, have lunch uh, with the human being. And so uh, I wanted someone coming around that intended evil toward the kids to not just meet a dog that would come over, lick them, roll over, and show their belly. So what we kind of needed was a both-and dog, a dog that spent almost all of its time as the family pet. Super nice, sweet, roll over, show you the belly, you know, fetch the stick, um, lick your face, but on the rare occasion that it was absolutely necessary, would slip into protection mode and uh, Cujo mode. And so we found a good dog, good German Shepherd with good instincts, and the truth is, they're a good both and dog. Um, They're not aggressive with the children, they're not intimidating of the children, they're not uh, mean toward the children. It's actually a really nice dog, tail wagon, Dog thinks that she's the sixth kid, loves to go out and play with the kids. And if they're out playing and she's not, well, then that's the end of the world. She's just sad and mopes. And we found in Phoenix, the dog even jumps in the pool and will figure out how to go swimming with the kids because anything the kids are doing, if it's fun, she's going to do it with the kids. She's all about having fun with the kids. Feel very safe with her, with the kids. She's very kind and loving to the kids. But uh, holy Heineken, man, if if somebody shows up and she doesn't know them, she goes into defensive protection mode. The... The the fur goes up, the fangs come out, the the dog is barking, gets very aggressive, gets between the person and the child, and will do their job to make sure that the child is safe. That's a good dog. That's a good dog. Now, God wants you and I to be a good dog. Not just a nice dog that never gets angry and pushes back on the bad guys or protects those who are weak and hurting. Jesus got angry, God gets angry, it's not a sin to get angry. But God doesn't want us to be a mean dog. You know that dog, they're always barking and biting for no reason? That dog that's just surly and snarling and you never want to go near it. And the last thing you'd ever do is leave your dog home alone with the kids in the house because you might come back to kids that are terrorized and traumatized. That's a bad dog. There's two ways to be a bad dog. A bad dog never gets angry. A bad dog is always angry. Solomon says, control your temper. That's a good dog. It doesn't say eradicate, eliminate your temper. Get rid of all anger. Um, If you lose your anger, you lose your sense of justice and love. You lose your sense that some things are right and some things are wrong and some people are getting hurt and it's not okay. There are not good emotions and bad emotions. There are emotions expressed in good and bad or godly and ungodly ways. Next point, number eight. You cannot move forward while looking backward. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10. Great verse, I love it. I use it a lot in consulting in churches that are older. It says, don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. Sip of water, I've got a son who's 16, time to teach him how to drive. One of the first things you tell him is, hey, don't look back all the time. Maybe your brother, your sister, your friend is in the back seat, but you've got to keep looking out the windshield, right? And don't keep looking over your shoulder to see where you've been. Maybe you're driving away from a sunset and you think that was beautiful. And so you look over your shoulder to watch the sunset a little more. It's not going to end well for you. You cannot go forward with your head looking backward. And what's true physically is also true spiritually. You cannot move forward in your life with the Lord if your eyes are always swiveled back, obsessed over the past. Uh, this is why Lot's wife turned to a pillar of salt when walking away from a godless culture as she walked away, but she looked back. Do you remember that story? They're walking away from Sodom, but she's not looking away from Sodom. She's looking back. She's not looking to the future that God had for her and her family. She's looking back to a sinful way of life that in some ways she, she misses. And She starts pining about these quote-unquote good old days. This is why Jesus says that life with God is like plowing a field, and once you put your hand to the plow, you can't look back. You can't plow a straight row if you're a farmer by looking back over your shoulder. This is why Paul says, and I love this verse, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward. He says that in Philippians. You can't press forward until you forget what lies behind. You can't move forward until you have finally come to a place of peace and resolution with the past. This doesn't mean you ignore it, back to the previous point, that you've protested it, that you've grieved it, that you've lamented it, that you've brought it to the Lord, and you've buried it. Fool, Solomon says, talk a lot about the good old days. Uh, This can be through nostalgia, where we remember an easier season of our life, like when the kids were little, and they couldn't drive the car to the liquor store. This can be a tradition, where we just wish that things would always be the way they used to be because that's the way we like them. A lot of church folks are big on tradition, and it's sometimes a violation of Ecclesiastes 7.10. The problem with such thinking is that since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, there have been only days filled with various amounts of pain and struggle. There is no good old days, not since Genesis 1 and 2, not since the Garden of Eden. Sometimes we deny this and start to romanticize the past into something it never was, Perhaps the most clear example was when God's people had been in brutal slavery for over 400 years in Egypt. God delivers them, they're free to walk away, and they pine for the good old days when it was so awesome and we were brutalized slaves. It's crazy. As obvious as this seems to us, it's the same folly that compels a happily married man to track down his old high school girlfriend online and compels his teenage daughter to return to her abusive boyfriend it's historical amnesia, it's historical revisionism. Reality is gone and all of a sudden we've created a fantasy. Forward is God's plan for the good days and the good time really starts when life ends. So he says, don't long for the good old days, this is not wise. The ways of the wise, number nine, wisdom and wealth are wonderful. Ecclesiastes 7, 11, and 12, wisdom is even better when you have money. Both are benefits as you go through life. Wisdom and money can get you almost anything, but only wisdom can save your life. Think about it. Life is like a storm and we're in a little boat and we need two oars to get through it. Solomon's saying, here's two good oars, wisdom and wealth. Don't knock wealth. Some of you are young and you don't understand. You've got a poverty theology that's an overreaction to a prosperity theology. Wealth is not a bad thing. It depends on what you do with it. Wealth can be a good thing to help some of the pains and problems of life go away. Let's say you're a newly married couple and mom wants to stay home with the kids. Well, you've got to make enough money to make that happen. You're in a place that has a horrible school system and you want to give your kids a good education. Well, money can help. One of you gets sick or someone you know or love gets sick or injured, money can buy for good medical care. You find yourself in a difficult legal circumstance, money can buy you a good attorney. Money's not always bad. Money can even buy you better food so you live a healthier lifestyle and get you good medical treatment so that you're not suffering your whole life, but you're flourishing with some wellness. Money can help you love and serve a lot of people. It can feed others. It can serve others. It can help others. It can do a lot of good. So wealth is not a bad thing, but he says that wisdom is even more valuable than wealth. See, if you don't have wisdom and you do have wealth, eventually you lose your wealth anyways. He says, in fact, wisdom can save your life. Wisdom is what you eat and where you go and who you spend time with and what you do. Unlike knowledge, which tells us that which is true, wisdom also tells us what to do. Um, Knowledge is oftentimes about what you believe, and wisdom is about how you behave. Wisdom does not guarantee the absence of hardship in life. Wisdom can navigate you around a lot of hardship in life. It can help a lot. But hardship eventually comes, and wisdom does guarantee a course through the hardship of life. So sometimes... The foolish and the wise, their boat hits the same waves and is headed toward the same rocks. The difference is that wise people figure out how to navigate around or through disaster and fools shipwreck all the time. How do you do this? It's not my notes, but it's something that I'd share with you. I like to meet with people who are wise and I like to take notes. I like to just ask them, you've been married for 40, 50 years, you love your spouse. What can you tell me? Practical. You've run a successful company. Practical. You've raised kids that love the Lord. Practical. What did you do right? What did you do wrong? What did you learn? This last uh, year, I've been on the road traveling to a lot of pastors and leaders, just asking questions people that are wise and they're successful. So, what do you do? How does your life look? What is what is the life lesson that you would share with me if there was only one you could share? I start asking all these questions and I usually come prepared with my questions. And then they talk and I listen. I just shut up and take notes. And then I pray and process and I try and have their wisdom integrated into my life so that I can grow in the things of the Lord and the future that he has for me. Wisdom and wealth, he says, are wonderful. And it's good to have money. And if you have wisdom, it's even better the ways of the wise point number 10 god has two hands and of course this is metaphorical ecclesiastes 7:13 through the first half of 14 listen to this and i don't know what kind of season or circumstance you're in right now but maybe this is a word from god for you accept the way god does things i'll be honest that, that's a little tough for me. I've got a way I like things done. I'm a planner, and I like things to go according to plan. And then I forget that God is not my employee, but He's my Lord, and as a result, I need to go with His plan, not mine. Accept the way God does things. For who can straighten what He has made crooked? He says, enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times come, or hard times strike... Realize that both come from God. Okay. See, God made this world good, perfect, upright. Because of human sin, the world has been made bad, imperfect, and crooked. And living in this cursed and crooked world requires us to accept the fact that no one in no thing is perfect. Everyone and everything has a shadow side, has a fail failure, a fault, a flaw, and everything and everyone has an aspect and an element of brokenness and frustration. Now, what we want is we want to get from point A to point B. What we want is we want life to move forward, but God's got his way of doing things. Think of it like climbing a mountain. As I say this, I'm sitting actually in a cabin in the woods up in the mountains outside of Phoenix. Kids had the week off of school, so we went out and did some exploring, and the temperatures are cooler up here, and it's been really beautiful. But as you look at uh, hiking a mountain, you can't go straight up. You can't. Um, you can't drive straight up. You can't. You can't just go from point A to point B if you're driving or walking. Instead, you got to back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, zigzag to get up. Well, that's not how most of us want life to go. We want every step to be forward. We want every situation to be progress. And it doesn't always work that way. And sometimes when you're driving or you're climbing or you're hiking, it even feels like, it feels like we're going downhill again. Are we going backward? I thought we were supposed to be going forward. The only way up is to meander back and forth, including sometimes backtracking. And that's the only way to go up without getting stuck or falling off. Life is like that. As we are on this journey to God's great kingdom, it's like that. So in life, there are times we're moving forward, times we're moving backward. There are times of prosperity, times of poverty. There are times of health and times of sickness. I'm not saying I like this, but he says that we need to accept this. Sometimes we only want God to give us a good, flat, clear path without backtracking, falling, struggling. The truth is it's easier sometimes to sing God's praises when times are wonderful and much tougher when times are awful. Solomon says that through wisdom we understand that God has two hands. One hand is God's active hand, the other is his passive hand. I'm going back here to the Protestant Reformation and what one of the key thought leaders of that movement taught i'm not saying that god has one hand and everything that happens is his active will Uh, when a child is sexually assaulted i don't think god was in heaven saying that's exactly what i wanted when someone murders an innocent person including an unborn child i don't think god is in heaven saying and that's exactly what i like i like innocent people and children to be murdered and harmed." So God does have an active hand, and there are active things that come directly from his hand. But not everything comes from God's active hand. God's second hand is God's passive hand. These are not things that God makes happen, but these are things that God allows to happen. Romans 1 talks about God handing certain people over to their sinful inclinations and desires. He's not making them do those things. His passive hand is allowing them to do those things. Now, either way we need to accept that whatever's in our life it passed through God's hands. It either came from his active hand or it passed through his permissive hand. This is the problem of suffering and evil. It's one of the most difficult knots to untie in all of Christian theology. I don't want to wade into it too deeply, dude, but I do want to address it practically. We'll use a case study so it's not just philosophical, but it's personal. Uh, do you remember a guy named Job? If you're not familiar with Job, he's kind of a famous guy in the history of the world. Uh, there's a whole book of the Bible named after him. It probably was written as the earliest book in the Bible. It may even predate Genesis, not insofar as the period that it explains, but the time at which it was written. Well, Job was a guy who loved the Lord. He was, if we're talking wise and foolish, Job was wise. He loved the Lord, he feared the Lord, he served the Lord, he was a godly man by all accounts. As a result, his life prospered. He had a wife, he had kids, he had cattle, he had land, he was wealthy, he was healthy, he was wise. And then tragedy strikes. He doesn't know the story. We kind of get to peer behind the curtain. And there we learn that there's this cosmic situation that's unfolding, it includes Job. He doesn't know what's going on behind the curtain Satan wants to test Job, and God gives him permission. This is all very complex and difficult to understand. But he is given the opportunity to bring excruciating suffering and pain to Job. Job loses all of his wealth, loses his kids, loses his reputation, loses his health he's sitting on the ground and he's scratching his open sores with uh, shards of pottery this is a devastated broken man who went from the penthouse to the outhouse in a moment the one thing that was not taken from him was his wife i don't know if she was having a bad day or she was just a bad gal but her advice in job chapter two is here's what i think you should do sweetheart Curse God and die. Just give God the finger and then he'll kill you and this can be over. Obviously, she's not real long on encouragement. So Job replies. Here's what Job says. What would you say? God, I did nothing wrong and you took everything from me. Some of our suffering, it is self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Sometimes it is just undeserved drive-by. His is undeserved drive-by. Here's what he says. What would you say? Here's what he says. Job chapter 2, verse 10. You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, the commentator says, Job said nothing wrong. What he says is, okay, so when God gives us, you know, candy bars and bunnies, ice cream, pats on the back, and high fives. We love that hand. When God allows pain or suffering or loss to pass through his hand, uh, we tell God, hey, you're only allowed to use one hand. you need to tie the other hand behind your back? This is what faith looks like in the face of pain. We do not see what God is doing, but we turn to him and we trust him and we stick with him until our faith becomes sight. And this may even be upon our death where First Corinthians 13 says, we see in part and we know in part, and one day when we die, we'll see the Lord Jesus face to face and we'll understand everything. See, God has two hands. That's what he's saying, and the wise person understands that. This helps us deal with the worst seasons of our life. Have you ever lost someone? Have you ever lost something? Was it painful? Was it awful? Then you know. You know exactly what it feels like. And it's interesting because in modern psychology, the stages of grief or the five stages of grief have been widely accepted as the process by which people deal with their most difficult seasons. Stage number one, denial and isolation. This isn't really happening, and I don't want to see or know it. Stage number two, anger. This is wrong. I'm very frustrated. This is this is not right. Number three, Lord or whomever holds the power in the circumstance, you tell me what you want. I'll give it to you if I get what I want. Let's work out a negotiation. Let's Let's not let this fate happen. Let me bargain a way out. Number four, depression. There's nothing I can do. It's out of my hands. This divorce is going to occur. This child is going to die. Um, This friend is going to lose their battle with cancer. Uh, These relatives are moving away. That company is going to fire me. Those friends are never going to be trustworthy. That money is never coming back. Depression. Number five, they say, is acceptance. Okay, it is what it is. I need to figure out what I'm gonna do. The rules have changed. The script is flipped. Life is different. What am I going to do now? And in the middle of a a dark, difficult season this past year with a counselor uh, who loved the Lord, he said, as Christians, we need to add a sixth stage of grief, thanksgiving, thanksgiving. That we need to see that somehow through it all, it is for God's glory and our good. Now, we may not fully understand it, but we thank God knowing that it's true until we do see it and understand it. this is what Solomon is saying, this is what Job was saying, and this is what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, quote, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'm not saying you don't try to make life better, and avoid pain, and walk in wisdom. But when you've done everything you can do, and your fate is your fate, and reality is reality, and what is passed through God's hands is not what you wanted. You give thanks to the Lord, and you start looking for ways that this is for His glory and your good. And it doesn't happen all at once. And I don't want to Pretend that I know what you've been through or are going through, or press you in a direction that feels like I'm pushing and shoving you. But, and I'm not looking for a Pollyannish view of the world where we just sort of pretend that there's always a bright side. Well, not always, and sometimes you got to look really hard to find it. And it takes a while for it to show up. But even in the worst, is it possible to find something to be thankful for? I was dealing with a woman recently. Her husband has been committing adultery for years. She just found out and she's devastated. And I said, as painful as this is, be thankful that at least now you know the truth rather than living without an understanding. There's a friend of mine that was recently diagnosed with cancer and it has apparently been growing for years and showed no symptoms symptoms, and he did not know. And I was talking to him. I said, well, I'm destroyed and devastated and concerned for you. I love this person very much. I said, but... I'm thankful that at least they found it. It's been there the whole time and we just didn't know. So I'm not thankful that they have cancer, but I'm thankful that it got discovered so maybe they can treat it and solve it before it becomes catastrophic. What is there to be thankful for? And if you're always asking that question, it allows you to start to get a little peek of maybe what God is doing and why what is even passed through his permissive hand is something that in the end could be used for his glory and for your good. Not all at once. It's not easy. We don't see it all. We don't know it all. But we have to trust that God does and he's good. Way of the Wise, number 11. Lastly, he says, hold everything and everyone with an open hand. You can see how these sort of hang together as a unit of thought. Ecclesiastes 7.14, the last half. He says, remember that nothing is certain in this life. Boy, any sense of entitlement or expectation, it just leads to devastation and disappointment. Anyone and anything can be broken, taken, or forever changed in an instance, right? Health, money, friendships, family, job, ministry, role, responsibility, relationship, opportunity. Things can go so asked. Nothing is secure. He's absolutely right. Nothing is guaranteed. So you've got three options. Let me give them to you. Option A, you can get bitter when you lose who or what you enjoyed. Just get bitter. That sucks. They're gone. It's gone. That's not right. That's not what I wanted. I'm very frustrated. I'm very upset. I'm very bitter. I'm very angry. I'm very jaded. I feel robbed. I feel ripped off. I feel used. I feel abused. I feel disappointed. I, I I expected more, and it didn't happen for me. Option B. Well, since anyone or anything can be taken away from me, I'm not going to love or let close to me anyone or anything. If I don't have close relationships, if I don't have possessions, if I don't have people and things in my life, then they can't be taken from me, and I can never be hurt. The whole goal is to avoid hurt, not to enjoy life or love. Have you done that? Have you gotten bitter and angry? Or have you isolated yourself and removed yourself from experiences and people just because you don't want to get hurt again? I was talking to someone not long ago. Um, They lost someone they love very much and they're really struggling with. Should I ever have a close relationship again? If people die and they leave you, is it really worth it? It is. That's option C. Enjoy what you have. Enjoy who you have for as long as you can. And when it's gone or when they're gone, be grateful to God for the good that you had and the memories you made. You make the most of what you got. And that's life, friends. That's life. I'm not going to have my wife forever, so I want to enjoy her while I got her. My kids aren't going to live at home forever, but I want to enjoy them as long as they're there. I'm not going to have my health forever at some point, so it's going to start breaking down. So I want to enjoy it as best I can. I love teaching you the Bible, so thanks for tuning in. I've not been able to do it the way I used to, but I can still do it. And maybe someday I'll do it again. I don't know. Enjoy what you have, enjoy who you have, for as long as you can, and when it's gone, or when they're gone, be grateful for the good that you had and the memories you made. I guess for me, I think of it this way, and I know it's a little blunt, but that's the way that I am. I deserve hell. Everything else is a gift, so I've been really given a lot of gifts. And rather than expecting to only get gifts, I expect that also in this life there are going to be some things that are painful and difficult because we're not in the kingdom of God yet, and it's all not finished and done, and we're on the journey home, and and there is going to be some pain along the path. And if you think about it, each of these 11 ways of the wise, they ultimately lead us right to the Lord Jesus. You start asking, well, who's ever lived like this and what's this look like? Well, that's Jesus. God comes down and he lives according to all of these principles. He is wisdom incarnate. He is perfect wisdom, no sin, no folly of any sort or kind. And Jesus, therefore, is the normal life. And he shows us what a normal life, a wise life is supposed to look like. That's why he alone is the one the Bible calls wiser than Solomon. And here's how Jesus lived, I want you to know. He lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. God came into human history as the God-man Jesus Christ, and he set aside the continual use of his divine attributes. And Luke 2 says that he grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with men and God. And Luke reminds us over and over and over that he grew and he learned and he experienced and he was wise and he persevered and he taught and he cast out demons and he dealt with his enemies and he stewarded his resources by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in the Bible, He is called the Spirit of Wisdom. And so, if we really want to land the plane here, you say, okay, how do I lead a wise life? Well, it's by getting to know the wisest person who's ever lived, the Lord Jesus, by having Him forgive all your sin and folly through His death and resurrection. That opens up the doorway for God's eternal life to come to us in this present life and to usher us into God's presence once this life ends. In the meantime, we seek out wisdom through God's Word and people who walk in the wisdom of God's Word. And we invite and ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk in that wisdom. And so I would tell you that the only way to walk in the ways of the wise is to invite the Spirit of wisdom to lead, to power, empower, and to guide you. And apart from the Holy Spirit, we can't just look at the life of Jesus and admire it. Um, without the power of the Holy Spirit, we can't follow it. You can think that Jesus lived an amazing life, but he doesn't want you to just be amazed at his life. He wants you to experience his life and to walk away from your folly and to walk in his wisdom. So he sends the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures that he has written, to change your appetites and desires, to give you insight and counsel so that you can start to live an increasingly wise life to God's glory and your joy. It's a great honor to teach you. Um, I I guess I'll just pray for you. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity you've given me in a season of life where I'm learning uh, and relearning a lot of this for my own self. Lord, I thank you for wisdom and that it helps us navigate even the most difficult seasons of our life. I pray, Lord God, for those who are Hearing this message, some are in a very successful season and they need to know how to navigate it wisely and not squander it foolishly. They're healthy. They're happy. uh, Their finances are good. Their relationships are solid. uh, They are in a season of abundance and blessing. I pray you'd give them wisdom, God, not to be foolish and to waste these opportunities, but to invest them. Lord God, for others, it's a season of losing. The health is not good. The relationships are not good. Um, The the finances are not secure. Things are not stable and strong. Things are shaking and they are weak and fragile. And and Lord God, some of my friends are are really hurting and they're in a painful place. And so Holy Spirit, would you minister to them? Would you bring wisdom? Would you comfort and counsel them through the scriptures? And would you bring to them the same power that you brought to the Lord Jesus so that they might uh, live well, that they might love well, that they might learn well? And God, we thank you that uh, in this life, we're not just orphans that are abandoned. We have a Father who gives us wisdom. And so Father, please send the Spirit to give us wisdom that we might walk in wisdom and walk in the pattern of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks a bunch.